0: white folks in particular thinking about, well, what's my role in this as a white person? What role do I need to play? And I got to say, a lot of that's going to be really awkward. And we're already seeing that awkwardness and some of the clumsiness. I fully expect that, actually, because whiteness is normative and people who are white are not used to thinking of themselves that way. And so to think about themselves acting politically as white people It feels uncharted territory for a lot of folks. Hey
1: everyone, it's Jenna. This week we are bringing you another interview that we hope will help provide some context to the discussions about racism and inequality that are happening all over the U.S. right now. I'm joined by Tehema Lopez Bunyasi, who is Assistant Professor at the School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University, and Candace Watts Smith, who is Associate Professor of Political Science and African American Studies here at Penn State. Candace and Tehema are co authors of a book called Stay Woke A People's Guide to Making All Black Lives Matter. The book looks at the history of structural racism in the U.S. and gives people the tools they need to adopt an anti-racist mindset. In this interview, we talk about the clumsiness associated with changing long-standing patterns of thinking and behavior and how that's playing out across our online and offline lives and, and among both individuals and companies. I found the book and this conversation about it to be very helpful in my own thinking about anti-racism, and I hope that you will too. Candice and Tehama, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Jenna. So uh, your book, Stay Woke, A People's Guide to Making All Black Lives Matter, has been really helpful to me personally, uh, and I I hope will be helpful to our listeners as we're thinking through how to grapple with racism and inequality and these issues in in the U.S. as we all have been doing over the the past few weeks in the the wake of George Floyd's death and the the protests that have sprung up since then. And one of of many things that you do so well in, in the book is talk about the Ideological framework, or some of the the history behind the Black Lives Matter movement. I think you know we see it, of course, now as a hashtag on signs, on t shirts, all of these things. And I think it's one of those things where if you ask ten different people, you might get ten different answers about what exactly it means. And, and you know, maybe that maybe some of that messiness is okay. We can certainly talk about that. But I thought a good place to start might just be what what really is the the ideological foundation of Black Lives Matter movement. Sure. I
2: think it's really important for us to keep in mind that even though we associate Black Lives Matter, even in this moment with police violence and brutality, that the kind of origins of Black Lives Matter started around the murder of Trayvon Martin, which was essentially a vigilante killing. And it's not just about that kind of violence, gun violence or police brutality, but also about all of the ways that Black people in this country face violence. So violence in schools, even if it's kind of curriculum and being left out, violence in health. So we can kind of link to COVID, even though we're not thinking about COVID centrally in residential segregation and so on and so forth. So the Black Lives Matter movement is an effort to try to get us to think about all of the ways in which Black people are marginalized and to think about how there are different groups of Black folks who are on the margins of the margins. So LGBT and queer Black folks and immigrant Black folks and formerly and currently incarcerated Black folks. So I guess to say the ideological kind of maybe umbrella of Black Lives Matter is for us to think about all of the ways in which Black folks suffer different kinds of oppression, and to think about how we can address these issues.
1: Right. As you said, it is the very big umbrella, lots of, of different pieces within it and you know I think with that does come some of that messiness about okay which of these issues are we, we going to to tackle first? Obviously police have come to the forefront right now. But Tayman, what do you make of this kind of of messiness? Is it okay that this this movement can mean different things to, to different people or you know how do we try to find some cohesion amid all of these different pieces?
0: That's a good question. It's always a challenge when we're talking about movements, period. Movements mean, a lot of them are in the the eye of the beholder, where the center should be, and Black Lives Matter states this well as an organization, is being unapologetically Black-centered, and that has kept the narrative and the focus very much on Black Lives, even as the organization, even as the movement has been concerned with the precarity of lives that are not black but are you know intertwined and affected by systemic racism, homophobia, sexism and the other systems of hierarchy that oppress black people. So I think that some of the takeaways, the ways that this movement feels different to me in some regards is that I feel like it's really taking away a lot of lessons from decades worth of activism and scholarship that has pushed us to be more radically inclusive. So I feel like I'm continually impressed by how intersectionality, the theory of intersectionality has been incorporated on the ground. So to think about the particularities that this movement started with three Black queer women and through that lens have articulated what precarity looks like and where the systems of oppression are and how they affect lives, this is how the movement has been, in a way, founded and flourished. And it can be very challenging to appreciate and start to use that lens of intersectionality. I'm not saying that it's easy for most people, and sometimes it's challenging still for me because there's all kinds of blind spots that when you're just focusing on one identity marker, We can forget other ways that we are impacted. But what this movement is great at is calling upon us to do better and to be more thoughtful. And so I feel like that's one of our anchors here that we need to focus on is that multiplicity of precarity because there is a multiplicity of hierarchies that are shaping lives in this country and and throughout the world.
2: I think another way that I was having a conversation with my neighbors across the street who just said, I don't understand what people want. It seems like there's just kind of all of the messages. Can there just be a national leader? And so back to your question, Jenna, also about the messiness. I think another part of the messiness is because Black Lives Matter recognizes the specificity of challenges at the local level. Mm -hmm. And so while people are really looking for and hoping for a national leader to emerge, even the question of policing doesn't have necessarily a national answer because policing is within the realm of the state. Just like education is in the realm of the state, healthcare we can see is very much in the realm of the state, or, you know, there are state and federal relationships, but it's also messy because every community has its own set of problems, and the people who live in those communities. Probably have better ideas about how to deal with those problems than any national one size fits all policy could ever do. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. And you make that point in the book as well about how we can kind of use the principles of federalism to our advantage here, right? Just, Just as you were saying, that these changes can start at the community level, the city level, the town level, you know, whatever that looks like in your area, where it might be easier to affect change than something nationally, where we tend to associate it more with gridlock and just being more difficult to, to move the needle on something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm thinking about that in, I, I think we can all kind of like intellectually get our heads around that. But also at the same time, I feel like we have more of a, of a national identity now, you know, we live our lives on social media. And so it's easy for us to feel maybe in some ways more connected to somebody who lives in a different city or or town or part of the country than it is to people who live in our own backyard. And I think that you kind of talk about this in the book, too, about how the communities that we live in are very much segregated. And while we might feel solidarity with people in other places, we can't forget about our local ties either. So how should we be thinking about this kind of cognitive dissonance, if you will, that we find ourselves in right now?
0: We can think about them in a way as tools. I think that might be helpful. In movement building, we need to think about the different stages that we play on and the actors who we play with. For example, what you just brought up made me think about how Minneapolis right now is serving as a model for a community that is ready to act and that they are really pushing the envelope and that as far as, you know, what they're doing with possibly disbanding the police department, it's fascinating and it's bold. And when cities take bold actions like that, other municipalities can take note and the actors on those grounds can push for those things. I think another way that we can think about this is I'm seeing you know, on social media people talking about kind of like a GoFundMe type of thing for bailing people out of jail, right? The protesters and people prior to protests being bailed out of jail and so where some GoFundMe's are getting everybody out, now they're directing people to other localities that hadn't gotten them as much attention and say, hey, if you're willing to donate, you should think about going over there. So that's one way that we can help support our partners in other places and also bring attention to our local needs and also think about how like the kind of challenges that we have in our own homes and our own hometowns and cities.
1: Right. So to switch gears a little bit here, you have an entire chapter uh, in the book basically dedicated to definitions and words that are thrown around, I think, is how you, you frame them. And there were just a couple that I wanted to highlight that I thought were particularly relevant to what we're experiencing now. Candace, you talk about the difference between racism and white supremacy, which I think is a very important distinction. I think some people think about racism, you think, oh, well, if I'm not overtly mean to someone who is a different race than I am, then I'm I'm not racist. But there's still a whole lot of other power structures and things that have been in place that we might be complicitly involved in, whether we're conscious of it or not. So can you just talk about that distinction between racism and white supremacy? Sure.
2: So, of course, they are linked. I think that Our goal of pointing these two things out is that we often tend to think about racism, just as you said, Jenna, as kind of a personal hearts and minds way of thinking about different groups of people, but that obscures the kind of larger system of inequality where we see advantages systematically provided to some groups of people. And in our society, it tends to be white folks on average and disadvantages are doled out to other people systematically, to other groups, Blacks, Latinos, Asian Americans on average and in different ways. And so really the goal, our goal is just in the chapter, generally speaking, is to try to help people to make sure that we're Using the same words in the same way, and also to see how they are connected. When we wrote
0: the racism kind of uh, definition concept, what we wanted to do was highlight the structural aspect of racism, which is like a real strong theme in our book overall, and in talking about institutions and how those things relate to daily behaviors, and get us away from the default of thinking about interpersonal racism. Right, I mean, We want to incorporate that, but, but this book has a focus more on the structural. With the white supremacy definition, we're also pushing back against another default, which is typically when people think about inequality and, and racism, they think about discrimination against people of color. They think of discrimination against black folks. And this concept allowed us to highlight what are the lives of whites look like? What does white habitus look like? What do white preferences look like? And to do that work of highlighting privileges, advantages, and whiteness itself. And that's a really big turn. And I think that that's a turn that a lot of people are willing to make right now. And they're starting to make white folks in particular thinking about, well, what's my role in this as a white person? What role do I need to play? And I got to say, a lot of that's going to be really awkward. And we're already seeing that awkwardness and some of the clumsiness I fully expect that, actually, because whiteness is normative, and people who are white are not used to thinking of themselves that way in such a central, salient way. And so to think about themselves acting politically as white people... It feels uncharted territory for a lot of folks. And so our effort in this part of the book is to help flesh out those concepts so people can wrap their heads around them, sit with them, think with them. And and then we provide kind of questions that they can either ask of themselves or have in smaller groups or what have you.
1: Yeah, I think clumsiness is a great way to describe some of what's happening right now. I'm certainly seeing that play out across my personal friend groups and social networks. And I, I'm also I think we're seeing some of that in like the in the corporate space as well as as mm-hmm. brands are trying to figure out what to say, how to say it, all these these sorts of things. And right. I think that there is on a personal level, I've, I've sensed this feeling of if you don't say anything, then you're somehow complicit in this, or if you don't say something in like the loudest way you possibly can, whatever that, that looks like for you. I think there's a couple
2: of things. One, I think that it's important for us to keep in mind that there are different ways to show solidarity, to protest, to be anti-racist. And so maybe your way, there are artists, right? There are writers, there are organizers, there are teachers and then I think even it is helpful to just learn and to be a student in an area of study. And let's say, in this case, anti racism, that is important. It's an important thing to do. I also think that we sometimes get into this, and we write a little bit about this, woker than Daoism, whereas. If you um, aren't doing it this way and you don't know these words and you don't understand this history, then you can't be a part of the group. And that has its own kind of damaging effect because what you're doing is making the boundaries of who can be anti-racist quite rigid. And so I, I think it's important for people to try to figure out the best way that they can show or be anti-racist. And it may not be giving a statement. Maybe you have some other kind of skill or resource that you can leverage to produce a more equitable society.
1: Right. And does does that same thing apply in the corporate space? Do you think? I, I mean, I've seen brands in, in some respects are in this kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't type of scenario where yeah, if you, yeah. if you put out a statement, you risk being seen as tone deaf or not fully understanding. But you also feel like if you don't say something, then you are going to be called out for that too.
2: Yeah. But I think the problem with these kinds of corporate statements is that they mean nothing if the company is not doing anything. So if you say my company understands that we need to be against police brutality and we believe that all Black Lives Matter. Well, are you paying your Black employees the same amount for the same work that you are other employees? What kind of policies do you have? Do you have a a diversity officer who has no power to make decisions over hiring? Or, you know what I mean? So I think the problem with these kind of organizations and corporations making basically empty statements, that's the problem If on the other hand, I was just talking with a colleague who's writing a book about Black girl magic at Penn State Tamika Tonsil, and she was explaining to me that Dove not only has these kind of very positive images of Black women, people of color, but they also have been working in litigation to ensure that people can wear their hair the way they want to, right? So in that way, they're words also match the things that they're doing, leveraging mm-hmm. their power and their resources to produce some, some sort of material benefit. And maybe someone would say, well, who cares what you can do with your hair, except that we know that there are instances where Black women and Black men have been shunned, shamed, or even not hired or not promoted for wearing their hair in one way rather than another way
0: some of the businesses that seem to be resonating most clearly with the movement and, and who are getting more positive feedback are like Ben and Jerry's right. Who it's not even just that they have one of probably the clearest dopest statements they could have made in the past like week or two, but that they made one years ago Mm -hmm. and that they are a business who has pushed their industry along in thinking about things like fair trade. And they're still working in a capitalist framework, but they're trying to broaden what it means to have an equitable type of business. And it's those type of efforts that resonate with what we need to have a healthier society, what we need to have a healthier world. And so I don't know back and forward what their business does, but they have been a leader in that way.
1: Yeah, sure. People kind of know that they they've been doing these things for a long time. So There's automatically more authenticity, more credibility to whatever they they say publicly.
0: And it might be a strength for both businesses and individuals to say, "Hey, you know, we don't know a whole lot about this right now, but we're going to start learning," and to take that position because that's people feel like they need to be the authority right now, mm-hmm. and that's not a helpful place to be when you think that you're the authority. First of all, everyone needs to be sharing some power here. So to even try to take that position is like nefarious to begin with. So, But to say, we know we need to do better and we're going to be taking the steps. And then you start to walk the walk. People are going to believe that much better than to try to come out and strike a pose. You have nothing to show for yourself. Be a learner.
1: You also talk a lot in the in the book about kind of moving from protests to policy diffusion. We need people both in the streets but also in the courthouse and in, in local government and all of these things. And I'm you know, wondering what that looks like here. We talked about Minneapolis a little bit earlier. It seems like there's already some changes starting to happen there. And I'm curious given how quickly this has grown how large some of these these demonstrations have become how and when you think it might start to move into that policy space or when policy might come into play here
0: i think what's at our advantage here is that there have already been people who have been pushing for policies you know mm-hmm. right like there's already been some of that groundwork being done and what protesters have been fueling is the urgency and also making so very plainly that we cannot live like this. We cannot flourish in this type of system. So given the meetings that I've been in and the people I've talked to of late, we're at a moment of coordination and strengthening coordination for knowing what we're asking for. All right. And I'm really encouraged that I can turn on right now my local hip hop radio station, and I can hear the DJs asking their listeners, what policies do we want to see? And people are calling in, right? And they're saying really awesome, imaginative things. And this is part of the process, right? Like in lieu of the town hall, like sometimes people are doing this, especially during a pandemic. And to harness that energy to bring it to the school boards, to bring it to whatever council that you have, this is when that whole federalism piece becomes like really important and realizing where we need to concentrate our efforts to also see this as a moment that while we are calling for police reform, that we need to be thinking about all the other components of our society that are tied into that. What are we calling for with, in regards to education? What are we calling for in terms of living wage? All these things that are so connected, right? And given that this is an election year, there is a kind of leverage in an election year that is crucial to take advantage of right now. So for me, it's all about coordination. Pieces are there.
2: And one of the kind of critiques about the Black Lives Matter movement is that, oh, it petered out. And I think that what we're seeing now is that it didn't peter out, it just moved to a different direction, right? It moved to city councils, it moved to town halls, it moved to trying to shape policy and even try to get people elected. I think actually there's already models and that there are role models in various communities that can say, all right, this energy that we have that we're putting on the street today needs to be distributed across time, and that we do need to pay attention and stay on top of these processes. So I guess I would just want to give more credit to folks who are leading protests, because they often are people who are leading change in policy, that they are leading change in their community when there's not a protest. So I guess I just would say to follow those leaders. I guess the other thing I would say in thinking about, for example, Angela Davis, who writes that she's been working on prison reform for decades and so if Angela Davis needs decades to make change in prison, then what are the rest of us expecting, right? That we have to calibrate our time scales and not to be patient, but to be focused on the mm-hmm. kinds of change that you want to make.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. So, thinking about, as, as you were just saying, the people who have been working behind the scenes in, in city councils and, and, and all of these things over the past couple of years, are there any examples that come to mind of particular individuals or even particular places that have really done a good job at some of these things over the past couple of years that we could think about or maybe look to as a kind of roadmap for how we might go forward from here? I
0: know that we've we at least seen like some oversight committees. For police departments who are really looking to put teeth into it. And that work has been done in Cleveland in the aftermath of the murder of Tamir Rice. And that work was done, you know, that's a very ground up effort. That's an effort that was largely headed by young people, some of them in their teens, and really savvy. That's one example right there. And that's the kind of thing that is also being called for is trying to be emulated in other jurisdictions.
2: Some other examples that come to mind are an example from Durham, North Carolina, that happened maybe a year or so ago. That there was a budget to build this kind of multi million dollar police department, and community members said, No, I mean, you can build a new police department, but it doesn't need to be Silicon Valley in miniature. Or another example, California, right, made an effort to not have cash money bail. Now, whether that new system that replaces it is just as good or worse is questionable. But I think that the fact that people are made aware of the issue of money bail, or we can look in Florida, which maybe in the midterm elections had a referendum on a voter disenfranchisement, right? And so that was a bottom-up policy change. But I think that people are the, the conversation has changed for sure since 2014 where these questions are on more people's minds and are more salient than they had been maybe five years ago.
1: So as we bring things to a close here, you end your book on a hopeful note about all the the ways that people can take action and, and are starting to take action. I'm wondering if that sense of hope, continues now, or, you know, how you're you're feeling about this current moment and where you see things going moving forward.
2: So I'll start because between Tehama and me, I think I'm more of the pessimist. I do think that things are going to get better, but I will say this, even in this moment, which I think is a really, I can't exactly put my finger on the word that I want to use In this moment where people are really paying attention, where there are kind of, we see more multi-ethnic coalition building and um, people maybe that we didn't think would be paying attention are paying attention. No one can deny that the way that George Floyd was killed was abhorrent. No one can deny that. And so that's bringing attention to these issues in a way that it hadn't before. But I also want us to keep in mind that people are protesting with masks on. They are protesting during a pandemic. And what makes me pause is that it's almost as if we forgot that COVID also disproportionately led to the demise of Black and brown people. And so I think that we will have a problem if we don't figure out and have the discipline to connect issues of police brutality and violence on Black and brown communities with health disparities, with disparities in education, with wealth disparities, so on and so forth. So even if we kind of focus on this one domain, I'm afraid that people will become self-congratulatory about changing a policy in one area without also having thought about all of the ways that Black people face violence in all sorts of domains of American life.
0: You said it beautifully. I think what makes me most hopeful is to see that Black people aren't having to march out there by themselves and that white people are also getting a very hard lesson in the fact that when you stand up to really abusive power, you are also likely to get burned, even if you are white. And it's different. It's a different type of vulnerability for white people in that moment than it is for people of color, like to be clear. But that's opening people's eyes. When they see a 75 year old white man being pushed down by the police and like pretty much walk past, It's bringing into fuller view how police training, how dehumanizing it can be, because what they're seeing is that they're used to seeing white men being regarded as more fully human. And so there's a lot of eye-opening right now, and I too want to make sure that even while it's important to focus on the police component and the criminal justice component here, the matter of all these things that we're facing has to be dealt with, and that it is not a weakness in the movement to focus on the multiplicity of issues. It has to be done all together so that we can make every issue stronger. And the sooner we can embrace that, the better, which is why we need so many people in the movement. We can't do every single thing. We have our role. I'm realizing what my role is differently in this moment as I'm raising a four-year-old child with inadequate child care right like how can i participate is different than how i could have participated at 25 not married no children and how people who are older or who have disabilities how they can participate and so there's a place for us here and i just want to just keep our focus on moving forward on keeping energy and that there is a lot of good things to come out of just the the movement itself and building people or building relationships people are having these moments and it's it, to some people, it seems a little profane, but they're also celebrating their community, right? They're celebrating life, even as we are mourning people's deaths. And it is really complicated. But like, these are the kind of things I think that ultimately help sustain movements is to take out some time to celebrate our communities. And I'm seeing that kind of in different parts on social media right now. There are mixed feelings about the fact that there are people who are playing music during protests. And I'm sympathetic to both positions of like, oh, we shouldn't be playing music because it's a serious matter. And then other people like, but this is what's keeping us holding together because we're about to march for eight miles. So we have to find our way to just keep moving forward.
1: Thank you both for this book. We will link to it in the show notes. And thank you for taking time to join us today. Thank you, very Jenna. Much. Thanks for the invitation. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our engineer, and our editors are Mark Stitzer and Chris Kugler. Additional support comes from Ann Danahay, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For more information on this episode and detailed show notes, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. It's an election year. And if you are a listener of this show, that means voting and maybe even campaigning for your preferred candidates. But supporters of democracy like you also believe in the value of working together with people across differences to strengthen our country. A new nonpartisan program called Uniting for Action America provides just that opportunity. The program is open to U.S. residents over the age of 18 from urban, suburban, and rural areas with wide-ranging political views. You'll have the chance to build relationships, strengthen your problem-solving skills, explore different perspectives, and take action to strengthen our country and our democracy. The registration deadline for Uniting for Action America is July 31st. If you're interested, you can sign up at uraction.org slash america. Again, that's uraction.org slash america, and the registration deadline is July 31st.
0: This podcast is
1: part of the Democracy Group.